Welcome to Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I'm your host, Dr. Rick Green, and in this series, we will talk to the editors and experts featured in Selected Readings in General Surgery, a publication that highlights highly relevant and practice-changing information from the world's most prominent medical journals. As busy professionals, we don't always have time to read the most current studies. The goal of this podcast is to bring that information to you, providing key takeaways, insights, and perspectives from leading authorities in all surgical specialties and multidisciplinary areas that affect the surgical patient. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons. This is Dr. Rick Green, and I'd like to welcome you to this edition of Surgical Readings, We're going to be um, talking about our trauma world, and we're going to talk about trauma part two of surgical readings in general surgery. And it's my absolute pleasure to uh, have with me today, Dr. Sabrina Goddard, who is an assistant professor at the uh, University of Alabama School of Medicine. She's also the assistant trauma medical director. And Dr. Zane Hashmi, who's also assistant professor in the Division of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery at the University of Alabama. I'd like to welcome uh, Sabrina. Welcome, Zane. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. And I know that uh, we also want to have a shout out to Dr. Jeff Kirby. He's uh, one of our associate editors for this uh, trauma edition as well. And uh, again, we went over a lot of material on uh, our last podcast. And I want to congratulate uh, all of you because there's so much in this part two that we could talk about. And I think our mission uh, really is to uh, sort of limit a little uh, of our discussion. And so, Zane, I just want to start off with you, if you don't mind. You know, it's been 45 years. It's hard to believe since ATLS was launched, uh, 1978. And a lot of things have happened in the trauma world. But I just wanted to ask you, Zane, could you just comment? Because a a lot of what you're putting into uh, SRGS for this edition has to do with important elements of the ATLS course. And give me an idea how patients have benefited uh, from ATLS. And, And do we have any objective data to suggest that ATLS Uh, has uh, improved uh, our overall management of trauma patients. Yes, well, thank you again for having us. You know, ATLS, as you said, has been um, instituted for a very long time. And one of the two testaments of its success is the adoption, not just nationally, but internationally, not just by trauma surgeons, but any, any specialty that touches the trauma patient and comes into contact with that trauma patient is affected by how ATLS has taught us. And I think the the basic uh, tenet of ATLS is a systematic approach to evaluating a trauma patient and treating a trauma patient. And that, that has really helped improve how we provide care and speak the same language, whether it be in nation side, state side, internationally, Wherever ATLS principles are known, you know that you're going to talk a common language to take care of that patient in an optimal fashion. 
I think, you know, in terms of changes that have happened uh, in the last few years has been a shift from, uh, you know, advocating initially fluid resuscitation or crystalloid-based resuscitation to blood product resuscitation. That's probably been the biggest change that I have seen in the last 10 years. Uh, but apart from that, I think it builds upon its success year after year of uh, training the next generation of that systematic approach to taking care of the injured. Well, those are great points. Uh, and again, uh, you, you, you clearly state throughout uh, SRGS in this part two, the, the important issues that are taught in ATLS. Let's talk about some of those issues. Uh, I'm interested in uh, all of the important papers that you uh, included for control of the difficult airway. This has always been a problem. And, um, uh, airway management. We talk about video laryngoscopy versus direct laryngoscopy, other methods of handling the uh, difficult airway. Can you talk a little about some of those issues and what should the general surgeon know? Yeah, I think I think the underlying principle is, again, to evaluate the airway with the idea that, you know, airway is one of the few, first few things that could be life-threatening. And uh, early recognition of a difficult airway is very important. And going through an algorithm which is pre-rehearsed, pre-practiced in your mind to go stepwise in a sequential fashion of how to institute the next set of therapeutic interventions. Uh, there is more recent data. I think we cited a paper which commented on video laryngoscopy. It has been shown to have first pass success rates, which are higher than uh, non-video-based laryngoscopy techniques. Uh, but in, in the difficult airway setting, you would be hard pressed to even use video laryngoscopy with greater degree of success. And that that notion still stands time tested notion of uh, emergent evaluation of the airway to understand that this is a difficult airway that we can potentially get this with video laryngoscopy versus maybe trying for a surgical airway really quickly to make sure that we salvage the patient. Well, speaking of surgical airways, we all are taught uh, the tenets, at least, of cricothyroidotomy uh, as residents. And uh, those who are interested in trauma, of course, are well-versed. But when should we use a cricothyroidotomy? When, it should, when should it be considered? Right. So the, the absolute indications are, you know, patients who have massive uh, facial trauma with complete obscure airway that you cannot access through the oral cavity. Um, I think that's one big one that you should proceed uh, to a cricothyroidotomy emergently. Uh, the other ones are a little bit more relative indications. Um, you know, patients' anat anatomical factors might be, uh, might uh, predispose you to thinking about doing a cricothyroidotomy. Uh, severe neck trauma, where especially in the penetrating world, uh, that is something, again, that you should consider a uh, cricothyroidotomy first up versus a attempting a, uh airway um, or tracheal airway. I'm glad you mentioned the patient with uh, neck trauma uh, because airway control in the suspected spinal injury patient is important. Tell us some of the thoughts on that. How do we, how do we intubate a patient? How do we control the airway in the injured uh, patient who has a spinal injury? In the spinal injured patient or in a patient who you're suspecting a spinal injury, which should essentially be all our patients we're suspecting of, especially with high uh, velocity of trauma, um, we should institute inline stabilization where there should be one provider 
assigned the task of essentially holding the neck in a stable neutral position while the intubating provider intubates. Um, and again, you should take care not to uh, extend the neck too much or uh, institute more neck movements or place shoulder rolls. All of those movements can affect the stability of uh, spine. And uh, again, care should be taken for to maintain inline stabilization at all times. Well, let me turn uh, to your colleague, Dr. Sabrina Goddard. You know, Sabrina, it's always important, and you made a, a beautiful case in the second part of trauma about the indicators of shock. And could you just go over briefly, uh, what are the important issues that we should know as far as uh, recognizing shock in our trauma patients? Absolutely. So I think traditionally shock has been considered to be, you know, a blood pressure less than 90 uh, millimeters mercury, but we know that that's essentially stage two or stage three shock um, when the patient's exhibiting hypotension. So really they've already lost about 30% of their blood volume and is, are truly in a decompensated shock. So there's been studies looking at, you know, can we detect this earlier? Um, there's studies that have shown, you know, uh, actually every 10 millimeter decrease below 110, that there's a 5% increase in mortality, really questioning that dogmatic um, impression that a systolic blood pressure less than 90 is the correct cutoff. And we should really remain suspicious above that. Um, we know that it's not a great predictor. So further studies have looked into what ideal indicators of shock are. Obviously, base deficit um, has some substantial data behind it. Um, the problem with this, though, is it's uh, somewhat delayed. We have to wait on a lab value. Um, it's also impractical in the pre-hospital setting. Um, so from these limitations, uh, further studies have gone into things such as shock index and pulse pressure. Um, for those uh, less familiar, you know, pulse pressure is the difference between systolic and diastolic pressure. Um, and the cutoff that's really used for that is 45. Um, and less than that has been associated with mortality in our trauma patients. Uh, and similarly, shock index, which is the heart rate divided by the blood pressure, um, a shock index greater than 0.9 or 1 has been associated with increased transfusion requirements, um, as well as overall mortality. And though none of these are an absolute, um, these are parameters that are particularly useful in the pre-hospital setting um, uh, or to trigger you know, massive transfusion protocols within an institution. Those are excellent points. Uh, speaking of of shock, uh, we need to resuscitate our patients. We went over this a little in our discussion of part one, but I wondered if you could talk a little about the modern concepts relative to component therapy versus whole blood. Where do we stand with this issue? Absolutely. As you know, Dr. Hashmi had mentioned before, we've really shifted away um, from crystalloid use and into kind of a blood first philosophy. We know about the acid based arrangements, coagulopathy abdominal hypertension, ARDS, all those things associated with crystalloids. So, you know, really promising that we've moved towards a blood first approach. Um, traditionally, uh, high ratios of red cells to plasma were used, um, but, you know, the recent studies of proper that showed uh, optimal blood transfusion ratio of one to one to one uh, showed a decrease, a significant decrease in death from exsanguination. And since then, you know, um, because we've been using one-to-one-to-one, -one -one, we've naturally evolved to whole blood, both in the pre-hospital and hospital settings. Um, and military and civilian data has shown us that the outcomes are actually better when patients receive whole blood. 
as you can imagine, it's it's easier to give one unit of whole blood as compared to making sure that your red plasma and platelets are all uh, equal, especially in those large volume resuscitations where patients are receiving 20, 40 plus units of um, blood product. Though there hasn't been a uh, randomized controlled multicenter trial um, yet, uh, you know, UAB is... Uh, evaluating whole blood compared to component therapy in a in the what's known as the troop trial here so hopefully we'll have some solid data to compare whole blood as compared to component therapy they're excellent points one of one of the concepts that you included in this edition of SRGS was the diagnosis and management of post traumatic coagulopathy i wonder if you would talk to this issue how do we recognize it how do we treat it well, the, the traditional teaching is, uh, you know, we think about the triad of death um, with uh, hypothermia, coagulopathy, et cetera. Um, so one of the ways that we think to diagnose this is obviously, and whenever it's in front of us in the operating room and you see that this patient is uh, profoundly coagulopathic, um, there are different uh, interventions that can be performed, um, some thoughts of, in regards to PCC therapy, yet another ongoing multicenter trial to evaluate PCC in, in our trauma patients. Um, other adjuncts that you can utilize in these patients are uh, evaluation with your uh, coagulation uh, lab values, such as a, a TEG, um, and whether you have you know Rotem versus other versions of TEG can further evaluate. Um, but excited to see what the the outcomes look like whenever we're using this uh, PCC therapy. Excellent points. Thank you. Um, Zane, let's talk to imaging. Let's turn to imaging the trauma patient. That's always an interesting concept, and you include it beautifully in SRGS Part 2. What should we do? What kind of imaging is important today in most of our trauma centers? So a lot has changed, but there's, again, uh, the ATLS principles still hold as to what adjunctive imaging we get. Um, For the patient that we're evaluating in the trauma bay, I think uh, there are a couple of imaging modalities which should be used fairly regularly. First of all, a chest X-ray patients with most patients with injury patterns that we're talking about should receive a chest X-ray and a a pelvic X-ray. Um, and that basically tells us quite a lot of information about whether there's humanomotoraces, whether there's uh, any uh, traumatic diaphragmatic injury, chest wall trauma, rib fractures, and so on, uh, and pelvic injuries where there's pelvic diastasis and, and we need to put a, a, a pelvic binder to uh, maintain hemodynamics. So I think those two modalities provide actionable information. And then uh, not recently, but probably more recently than chest X-ray utilization, uh, the use of FAST has become uh, ubiquitous and now extending to eFAST modalities to extend it to not only abdominal ultrasound imaging, but also uh, chest, abdo- uh, chest uh, ultrasound imaging to rule out any uh, hemorrhage, tamponade, or hemonumothorax in the chest. So, th- you know, I think majority of the patients should receive uh, these imaging modalities. And then once patient stability, hemodynamic stability has been established, then you can take the patient in most uh, locations to a CT scanner. And in, in our setting, you know, patients who come injured to us, uh, they usually end up getting CT scans of the head, C-spine, chest, abdomen, pelvis. Uh, and there is more recent data to suggest that there might be a role for 
CT angiograms of the cervical spine to look at cervical vasculature for blunt cerebrovascular injury. Yeah, these are great points. Again, when we when we think of imaging, uh, one of the specific areas that we always consider is injury in the pregnant patient. Before we talk about imaging the pregnant patient, I wonder if you would talk a little about mechanisms of injury in pregnancy, because you include this beautifully in part two. Right. So when we talk about mechanisms, um, you know, injured uh, patients suffer from similar mechanisms, but two sort of stand out. Uh, one is uh, seatbelt uh, injuries um, and uh, motor vehicle crashes uh, among um, pregnant patients and associated features with that. And second is um, uh, domestic violence. And we've seen, unfortunately, a rise in that as well. And when we're evaluating that patient, we need to understand that, uh, you know, our focus needs to be on the injured pregnant patient, because the fetal outcomes improve if we salvage and rescue appropriately that injured pregnant patient. I think that's sort of the under, underlining principle uh, of resuscitating a pregnant patient. Um, when we come to imaging a pregnant patient, it differs not a lot from standard patients uh, because of the fact that we are focusing on treating and uh, rescuing that injured pregnant patient uh, with the understanding that, yes, there is some radiation exposure to the fetus. Um, but again, if we absolutely and uh, accurately diagnose and treat uh, and rescue the injured pregnant patient, then we are definitely improving fetal outcomes that way. That's an excellent point as well. I want to transition a little to specific injuries in some uh, areas. Uh, and one is uh, the management of the patient with a traumatic brain injury, significant head injury. And I wonder, Dr. Goddard, if you would just comment briefly on some of the newer concepts uh, to manage those patients. Yeah. So in part one, we talked about, you know, the appropriate triage of the brain injured patient and how that affects their uh, overall outcomes. Um, but there's an additional pre-hospital management um, concept, which is the prevention of secondary injury. We really know that hypoxia and hypotension are going to individually uh, carry a doubling of mortality, even just from a single episode. So those are one of the main things, you know, depending on what institution our listeners are at, um, that they can emphasize regardless of whether they have the ability to fully manage the traumatic brain injured patient. But once they apply, arrive, the general principle of prevention of uh, herniation, prompt diagnosis, and neurosurgical evaluation are, are key for our severe TBI patients. Um, you know, the, the standard practice of elevating the head of bed, optimizing ventilation, adequate sedation, those, those haven't changed. Um, hyperosmolar therapy continues. ICP monitoring, EVD drainage, those are all traditional therapies that have continued. Um, however, uh, I think one thing that is important to discuss are therapies that are not recommended. Um, the 2016 Brain Trauma Foundation um, recommendations, you know, now advise against hypothermia, hyperventilation, and steroids for um, brain injured patients, which, you know, may be different from current years or practice. There is, of course, the CRASH-3 trial. Uh, that showed early treatment with TXA um, may help to decrease mortality and overall was safe. And additionally, um, outside of treatment of brain injured patient, the I would say the real change in the in this um, 
literature has been whether neurosurgical consultation is indicated and if management can actually fall into the hands of the trauma surgeon. Um, from this, the brain injury guidelines have uh, arisen and, you know, Dr. Joseph and his group have kind of spearheaded this. Um, and these are a guideline based off of history, physical exam, uh, and CT finding that triages the patient to either observation, repeat head CT, um, neurosurgical consulta consultation. Um, and from the initial single institutional trial, the AAST has now validated it in a multi-institutional trial which has shown significant reduction in head, repeat head CTs, neurosurgical consultation, and admissions. And obviously, brain-injured patients are such a large population of our trauma patients. So any way that we can significantly reduce resource utilization and admissions can be you know, quite impactful to our patient care. Um, so those are, those are probably the biggest changes that have happened in the recent years. Well, let me turn to cardiac injury, and I want to get your thoughts specifically on blunt cardiac injury. How do we recognize the injury and how do we manage that? Absolutely. So, I mean, blunt cardiac injury is, is a spectrum of disease that can either be, you know, clinically silent contusion to an absolute cardiac wall rupture. The impact of whether it's just a contusion is pretty minimal, but, you know, obviously identifying those patients at risk for cardiac wall rupture is, is key. You know, there's been been studies showing what the highest indicators for predicting whether a patient will have blunt cardiac injury and those you know traditionally consist of other chest wall injury right um, so significant chest wall trauma uh, from there the question arises how to uh, identify those patients um, traditionally the screening has been done with EKG and troponin which has a very high, uh, sensitivity. Um, and we know that if both of those are normal, then we um, can feel pretty confident that the patient doesn't have a blunt cardiac injury. But if either are abnormal, um, we then are you know, obligated to further uh, observe this patient with uh, telemetry, or if that patient you know, is unstable or has a new uh, heart murmur or failure, then we're looking at echoes, ICU admissions, um, and on from there uh, to further identify these patients. And then the treatment obviously ranges uh, as a spectrum of, of what the actual underlying problem is if it's versus if it's myocardial infarction, a valvular injury, free wall rupture obviously would be a surgical um, issue. Um, but I think the, the majority of the problem lies in the diagnostic and screening of this injury. Dr. Hashmi, let me turn uh, for a moment to duodenal injury, the isolated duodenal injury. When do we close the defect? When do we bypass? So um, duodenal injuries are a tough problem. Uh, and I think the recognition of that is sort of the first step in uh, the algorithm of treatment. Um, majority of contusions or hematomas to the duodenum may not need much, we may need maybe an observation, maybe a take back to the operating room in 24, 48 hours to take a look. Uh, but most of these resolve and you don't have to do much. Um, maybe leave a drain uh, adjacent to the duodenum to make sure that it does not evolve into a full thickness delayed rupture. But for those high grade duodenal injuries, I'd like to think of them as based on size of the defect and the location of the defect, as well as the condition of you know, the remnant uh, duodenum. So if you have a, a large defect, uh, if you have defect close to the ampulla, uh, if you have close, uh, defect close uh, or the tissue is not amenable to repair, 
then I think you're looking at more invasive operations, more extensive surgery for bypass exclusion, um, and maybe with or without a pancreatic injury, looking at uh, duodenal and pancreatic duodenal resection. However, the mi the middle ground or the the mid severity uh, injuries are more amenable to primary repair. I would definitely leave uh, drains and widely drain the area upon closure of the defect, and then. Uh, get uh, post-operative imaging in a couple of days to evaluate for any leak using an upper GI technique. Very good points. Let me ask you, uh, most surgeons are familiar with the damage control principles and how to do damage control, but I want to ask you about how to close the open abdomen. What technique should we use? Right. There are a lot of techniques that have been described, but I think I would preface that by saying that in recent years with uh, blood product-based resuscitation, we have seen a trend towards not leaving a lot of abdomens open. So there are fewer and fewer indications for uh, leaving the abdomen open and pursuing damage control. However, it is still done. And for the closure of the abdomen, you know, in, in days gone by when we had massive amounts of crystalloid resuscitation, these abdomens were very, very challenging to close with a lot of mesenteric edema uh, and um, a high peak pressures upon closure. In recent years, majority of these are amenable to primary closure. The patient goes to the operating room within 24, 48 hours once the, uh, the derangements have been corrected in the ICU and gets a primary closure. For those minority of patients who are not amenable to closure, there have been several techniques described. I think um, you know people have described sequential closure uh, techniques, uh, which require takebacks and uh, closure over a period of time. Uh, people have described uh, non-synthetic mesh or biologic mesh uh, or vicral mesh closure, uh, which is one technique. Uh, and then there is a, a group of surgeons who uh, have also uh, published about primary closure of the damage control abdomen. So when they close, they close the skin only with the understanding that they'll return to the operating room in 48 hours, 24 to 48 hours. And in doing so, the fascia doesn't retract as much if you have a skin-only closure, uh, and fascia comes together beautifully in that in that case. So there are multiple techniques. I think it depends on how much tension there is um, uh, upon closure, and I think that sort of helps us decide which modality to use to close. So how do we diagnose and manage the abdominal compartment syndrome? So abdominal compartment syndrome is diagnosed uh, in a patient who has uh, intra-abdominal hypertension plus organ dysfunction. And uh, one of the findings with that is, you know, you have to have a high degree of suspicion for a patient who is exhibiting this. So patients who received high volume resuscitations, uh, the abdominal examination suggests a distended firm abdomen the absolute way to diagnose this is to have the patient be paralyzed and check bladder pressures. And uh, bladder pressure values more than 20 plus end organ dysfunction uh, that secures a diagnosis of abdominal compartment syndrome uh, for which action uh, should be taken for a decompressive laparotomy. Finally, Dr. Goddard, I'd like to ask you, uh, you, you beautifully talked about mental health issues, post-traumatic stress disorders in our trauma patients. What is the trauma surgeon's role in making these diagnoses and, and managing PTSD in our trauma patients? 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, traditionally following trauma, um, we we focus very well on caring for the injuries. Um, and I'm, you know, very encouraged that recently we focused on quality of life and these patient reported outcomes because post-trauma mental health is going to significantly impact their quality of life. Um, these, you know, includes PTSD, depression, substance abuse disorders. Um, and we know that our patients have high rates of PTSD, at least 20% of uh, trauma survivors in the U.S. will develop PTSD in their recovery course. Um, similarly, substance abuse misuse is over half of our trauma patients with more than 20% of them actually uh, meeting diagnostic criteria for abuse. Um, so the goal of the trauma surgeon and of the American College of Surgeons is to now do these mental health screenings um, and interventions so that we can uh, intervene to reduce that risk to not only keep our patients from developing chronic symptoms, um, but also allows us to uh, avoid recidivism. Um, because we know that if these patients continue to have um, these disorders, that they're at higher risk of ongoing uh, traumatic injury. There's furthermore been an emphasis on trauma-informed care, which is an approach uh, that recognizes the importance of the trauma surgeon or the provider understanding the patient's life experience and how that affects their delivery of care. So by screening these patients, intervening, and understanding what impacts them from following up with care, uh, I think is, is our role. Uh, and we can improve you know, trauma from happening in the first place, which I think is the goal of every uh, trauma surgeon. Well, these are great points. We've been talking to Dr. Sabrina Goddard, Dr. Zane Hashmi, uh, who put together a, a magnificent a trauma part two, along with their colleague, Dr. Jeff Kirby, all from the uh, University of Alabama uh, trauma group. Uh, Zane, Sabrina, thank you so much for being with me today on Surgical Readings. Thank you for joining us on Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag Surgical Readings. You can subscribe to Selected Readings in General Surgery at facs.org SRGS. Options are available for individuals, institutions, and residents. I'm Dr. Rick Green. Until next time, thank you for listening and learning.